Hello and welcome back to Newsreel with Joe and Neil. I'm Joe. I'm Neil. Today is Sunday, 20th of January, 2019. More of the same. Plus ça change. Plus c'est la même chose, as they say in French. The more things change, the more things stay the same. That's why it's going to sound like we're talking about the same old topics, but at the same time, things are moving so fast. So we're going to try and stay on top of it and bring you the lowdown on major events in the world this week. So I suppose this week, again, in France, another major turnout for the LFS protesters. Um, it's still limited primarily to France, but they're, they're growing. You know, there's small protests happening in the UK, in Ireland still. A second one in Australia. Interestingly, the one in Australia, the first one was specifically about migration mass migration mm. people there are like no australia for us natives natives bit ironic but okay we'll go with the whites being natives um but this week the apparently the main theme i think it was in melbourne was focused on central banking i.e the banksters the globalists which is the same kind of is the exact same undercurrent as the protests in france and everywhere else mm -hmm. so there's a kind of a unification of message that's that's interesting to see but of course, it's the main drives in France. Um, although it's protests in France, but it's also protests in the UK in the sense that the political situation there is, is kind of similar. Just the basic state of sclerosis. Like Brexit flared up again this week because finally Theresa May had to put her Brexit deal that she made with Brussels back in late November to vote. She tried to delay it. She did successfully, in fact, delay it in December because she knew she wouldn't get a majority mm. to support it. I don't see how it was any different this time. She wasn't going to get a majority. And indeed, that happened. 400 to 200 roughly voted against May's Brexit deal. Um, and then the subsequent survived. day, she survived a no-confidence uh, vote in Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, we'll discuss that in sequence, maybe. And the third, I suppose, thing that kind of the same theme is the sclerosis in the US, where Donald Trump still really wants a wall. But the only wall that's anywhere is the, basically the wall around politics. Politics isn't going anywhere, and that's obviously manifested literally in the government shutdown there. Um, it's kind of hard for us to gauge what actual real-world consequences that has. Um, I mean, we're familiar that, you know, some almost a million government employees are basically on unpaid leave. Mm -hmm extended Christmas holidays, I suppose. At what point does that really become problematic when they need their wages, you know? Yeah. Um, but still, it, at least at that level of a game in the uh, game of the political situation in the US, there's, there's a kind, there's the same kind of sclerosis, simply things not moving anywhere one way or the other, as in the UK, as in France, they're all manifested a little differently. And well, we're getting signs of it in Australia and elsewhere in the sort of Anglosphere. Who's a better term? Might be crisis. You know? Yeah, um, political crisis and a social crisis at the same time. They go hand in hand, as as as, as we know. You know, um, they are they're certainly usually linked. Um, what unites them all to me, though, is uh, could be the term sovereignty. You know, uh, people in Australia complaining about you know uh, corporate banks or whatever, uh, banksters is. Uh, and, and people in France complaining about the, the various the, the myriad things that they that they list as their grievances, and people in the UK arguing over Brexit, <coughs> uh, and people in the US over the wall. Um, all of that can all be resolved down to, mm -hmm. I suppose, in a, in, in a general sense, in the minds of the average people, or the people who are, you know, I suppose, protesting. <coughs> Are demanding something other than the status quo. What they're demanding is a return to sovereignty uh, in its various different forms. It can be sovereignty in the sense of borders, can be sovereignty in, in the sense of um, the sovereign citizen or the citizen being sovereign or being having some control over his his or her destiny or future and having some power, uh, as opposed to the power being held only by a small group of people. Mm -hmm. It seems that that's... And, that's and, the and dignity, if I can throw that word in. That's, that's yeah. the one the French are using a lot. Right, which which is a kind of knock-on, I suppose. It's, there's many different things tied into it, but it's hard to come up with one word, but I think sovereignty in, in its explicit and uh, 
and, and more maybe figurative senses uh, could could explain where this is coming from, where these protests have come from. And, you know, in France, there's a lot of people either who are protesting or support, a good majority, 70, 75, 80% of the population. Uh, in the UK, there's a decent percentage, I think a majority as well, want Brexit. Mm -hmm. I'd say in America, there's a majority of people who are in support mm -hmm. of the border wall. If you look at the actual details, and you see, if you see through the spin and the manipulations and the lies and the hysteria of the media and the way they present Trump's uh, agenda, um, it's it's not only not a big issue, but it's something that uh, the Democrats did um, back in 2006. It was under the, well, it was under the Bush administration, the Republican administration at the time, but all of the major Democrats supported it, uh, a, a border security act in 2006. And they spent $50 billion on building fencing. In like partial stretches. <clears throat> yeah, in different places. And that's Trump's issue. Trump's point now is that he wants... Uh, he's not like he said explicitly. He's not talking. We're not talking about a freaking wall, you know, because he says wall, but he's, we're not talking about a wall that stretched from a two thousand mile long concrete wall that stretched from from sea to sea type thing. I think know? that would be his first preference. <clears throat> no, but he said a China wall. He said explicitly not. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, and and, and that's what gets missed because media would portray it in that way. But it's actually he's talking about uh, specific areas, problem areas along the border where there are people still illegal illegally crossing into the U.S. and building sections. Uh, at those particular areas, um, there was no problem with that for from the for the Democrats back in two thousand and six, um, but apparently there is now because because Trump, you know, and I don't think for a moment that Democrats in the US actually care about uh, immigration or whatever. It's got so bad; uh, it's been this way for a long time that in, in politics in Western countries, the party that's in opposition will uh, adopt and scream and push an ideology uh, that is valid in their eyes simply because it's against the ideology of the ruling party. So Nancy Pelosi will make a big show of being so concerned about the dreamers and DACA and immigrants and uh, the ideals, the foundational ideas, the ideals of, of the USA, you know, bring me your whatever people, bring me your immigrants. Um, but she doesn't care about that. The only reason she's pushing that is because it's in direct opposition to Trump and, of course, what that's what the opposition does because they want to get into they power. Want the power. Their job when they're in opposition is to do everything they possibly can to take down or to criticize or to undermine the existing yeah. uh, the, the, the party in power so that they can get in power. All the next fair. Time. It's pure self interest, you know. People don't see through that and they're, they're, they're bedazzled by the, by the narratives around it, you know, like people pretending to be for some noble ideal and stuff. It's not, they're, they're self interested fundamentally. That's why they do it. And I'm reflecting. So that, somewhat I'm, philosophically on all these crises, I'm wondering how we got to this point and just how profound this point may have turned out to be. The, the thought that came to me this week was that this could be the end of what I had mentioned in earlier shows where there was a transfer of power from the previous era, in quotes, not at any one point in time. It obviously took a period of time to happen, but roughly a transfer of power from monarchy to republics, which are now conflated with democracies today. Um, and that this may be the end of the quote-unquote democracies. The democratic era. And I'm thinking specifically, I'm, I, I remember that now because when you say that, it strikes me that this system of where you end up essentially with two primary opponents shifting left, right, left, right, and then in, being in competition with other, I think it's lasted so long because there's an underlying acceptance by all that this works, that there, this is a form of, I suppose, free market competition, that if you're in opposition, well, you have to do whatever it takes to sell the ideas to the people. Right. And if you win, great. If you don't, too bad. You've got to try again. And 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 they 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 vibe, they you know they they face off like this in the open free market of well it seems to have run its course yeah. because it ended up with a sclerosis where there's the two and yes they're diametrically opposed at least at the level of rhetoric mm -hmm. 
But when you see but people the, want them all thrown out on there, they don't want any yeah, of them. When you see that old, well, they want some combination of both. Maybe or when it become well, Macron tried that in France and he ended up serving nobody, which right. is a very dangerous. It's obviously a, it's something that, it's a trap or it's a, it's a risk that you take. You know, when you take a centrist position, uh, you end up dissing left ideologies and right ideologies. So who are you actually re representing now? I mean, he, he thought he could create a centrist. Uh, demographic in the population but apparently not no people are still kind of left or right in their leanings in general but again in the, in the case of France people are, are s smart enough to be able to uh, see their common interests you know but um, yeah I think it's whenever uh, whenever governments get too self-interested and too well they are self-interested by definition almost or have been for a long time but when they really take that to an extreme and the gulf between what they say and what they actually do becomes apparent to people that's when people say to hell with a whole lot of you because it's just they've just taken they're they're, they're taking the piss if you want to excuse my french uh at this point you know mm -hmm. the, the politicians are you know um they're making they're 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 not even attempting to cover up the fact that they're just in it for, for themselves the mm -hmm. you know and uh and when people see that it's like well we need well they lose faith in democracy itself that idea of the left-right divide and that it's actually working and then, yeah, maybe it could be the end of the democratic era, and I don't know what comes after that. Uh, come, do we get what well, we get then? Despotic era, or do we go back to a monarchy, or do we? Does Putin rule over all of us? At that point, he just, <laughs> to he just sweeps to them, the power. Yes. He'll sweep the power. Yeah, if uh, he become a king of if of you believe if you believed just a, a thousandth of the BS about Putin, that's definitely the agenda. He will actually turn out to be literally a vampire who will never die. Mm. <laughs> they will live forever and rule into all eternity. Much to their annoyance, yeah. Um, never die. Um, yeah. So, in spite of all this, um, the empire rolls on. It's phenomenal. The, just, just passively paying attention to the various, in quotes, imperial interests. So, things outside of the US, outside of Europe, that have, have ticked along this week. It's like... Are these guys not aware that there's a, a potential crisis at home that could lose them at least their job, if not their heads? Or they are fully aware of it, but they carry on. Or they're aware of it, but not really, insofar as, yes, they're following the news, they know it's a problem, good, let's deal with it, but they're not really aware of the depth of it, I suppose. They can't relate, they can't actually look at this and go, Haha, I'm not actually under threat of... No, well, I think they feel pretty secure in their positions, you know. Right. Um, and that there's nothing that people can do. They can protest or whatever, but ultimately, as long as they have the police uh, on their side and the police will maintain law and order for them, then, you know, they can protest all they like, you know, but ultimately they'll have to calm down, go back to their houses and just accept the situation as it is because it's not for changing, you know. Um, so I don't think they have, any, they have any fear. I mean, maybe they should because who knows what can happen, but I really don't think there's much fear amongst them. Although we noticed during one of the, protest Saturdays in France there's for five weeks ago Macron uh, had a helicopter uh, at, right. the, at his Elysee Palace <clears throat> Indeed. Uh, waiting waiting just in case to whisk him away from the baying mob so um, yeah I mean they take those kind of precautions but um, but that, 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 that wouldn't who knows yeah I mean I suppose that, that that's something to think about you know if the people got into the palace and staged a coup or whatever or or I don't know how there was stage a coup, but it could get pretty, it could get out of hand. I could, I would say, you know. So they're alert to that danger, but certainly they're not in any risk. Those people, I don't think, in Western democracies, the security infrastructure is so complete and so all pervasive that uh, they're not in any risk of, you know, ending up like Gaddafi or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. ultimately, if the country did go down, if there was some kind of a people's revolution or coup or whatever, uh, and they were deposed, they would Macron would be off out of there before anyone knew it in a, in a, in a helicopter and then in a plane to, yeah. I don't know, he could go to any number of different places. A, a number of security forces may be fatalities, indirect clashes, yeah. but there's going to be no wide-scale retribution, no. guillotining no. of, you know, I think hundreds of the elites or no. something like that. No, no, because I think they're they're paranoid and enough and suspicious and, and uh, suspicious enough of the people and uh, they have enough fear and contempt, I suppose you could call it, for the people. The that rabble. They, that, that they would they would assume that these people could actually try to do that, you know. 
But that then justifies them in their positions in power. They think, well, if these people, look at these people, they're such a bunch of rabble, they want to chop our heads off. Somebody needs to control them, you know. The very fact that they're protesting, bizarrely, for the elite, the very fact that people are protesting is evidence for the elite that they need to be, to maintain themselves in their position of power over these people because, well, yeah, they're just, they're a rabble, yeah. Well, yesterday was the 10th. Actually, technically, it was the 11th weekend because they didn't quite name the New Year's weekend. There was a weekend there during the holidays that didn't quite count. So it's the 11th weekend, but they call it Act 10. Um, the official numbers for yesterday, 84,000. And that's double the official numbers last week. I don't believe any of them because they also said they had 80,000 gendarmes and police and CRS, etc., all the security, different policing units out there. So we're being asked to believe there's one security official per protester, but you clearly look at the video footage. No, it's more like 100 to 1. So are we, is it millions and they're massively understating it? I'm not sure. But um, th there was an interesting phenomenon yesterday in that Paris was visibly lower in number relative to some of the smaller cities that are further out, especially in the southwest in Toulouse and Bordeaux, that was where a lot of the action took place. In Bordeaux, they sent in those tanks they had had in Paris the previous two weeks, the big blue police units, um, water cannons, uh, unbelievable quantities of this tear gas, apparently some new tear gas. Uh, people are saying it stings harder and harsher. Um, whatever way they're dispersing it, once the protest starts, they're just blanketing an entire city center. Mm. It's turning into like, it's like a fog. You can't see, you can't breathe, anything. Um, yeah, so we're going to play a little video. We have a video of kind of a mashup of some of the footage taken by people at the protests uh, in Paris and, and other cities around France uh, yesterday. I'll just quickly summarize the stats so far. There's 10 people dead in the two months of protests. We're now at least over 5,000 injured. There's no good stats on that. Um, over 3,000 people have been arrested. Of those, 150 have been jailed. So they've already been processed. They're in jail. Um, one person for six months for suggesting on Facebook that it would be a good idea to blockade um, some kind of a, a, an, oil, an oil, oil refinery or a distribution center. Now, that happens in France. That happened in France during other protests in recent years. I don't remember anyone getting nailed for it, but you can see they're getting anxious and they're beginning to increase the levels of prosecution. Obviously, they don't want to, they stick it out of hand and they want to set an example, etc. So, and they're getting stricter with um, cracking down legally. Um, let's go ahead and play this mashup of events across France yesterday. Okay, so that's in Paris. Just to remember the 10 have been killed. I think that's Paris as well. This is a smaller city. It might be Rennes. Same here. Another relatively smaller city. Huge crowd. Another one still. And there you see the, the, the gases, the gassing, literally, of people starts. They just, they're huge amounts. This is in Toulouse. 10,000 people gathered in Place de la Capitale in the centre of Toulouse yesterday. You can hear the helicopters overhead. And they've been uh, running in and pulling out individual people, beating them senseless. Or maybe they, I don't know, maybe they have done something. And this is a woman, though, being beaten up. This is a metro station in Toulouse. Apparently, it caught fire yesterday. This is a bank that was completely trashed in the centre of Toulouse yesterday. Here you see the tanks rolling up in Bordeaux. I believe this is also Bordeaux. Bordeaux still. There was a huge crowd there and there was no violence. Apparently it all started, it just kicked off when the police rolled up. There was nothing to provoke them. 
this is back to Paris now. This is a typical tactic we've seen where the main riot police uh, separate their shields and plainclothes guys come out and just pick someone, whoever. This is in Angers, a smaller city. They tried to burn down a government building. I think they just got as far as the door. This might be Angers also. This is the entrance to the main police station locally, which they broke through. After being attacked from it all morning, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty serious. It's pretty widespread. That's the thing. That's, it's, it's the main... It's, the main, it's one of the main characteristics of the whole movement. Um, the international media only gets as far as Paris and the Arc de Triomphe because it's iconic and everyone knows it. But it really is uh, disproportionately relative to population centers it, in the smaller cities in, in peripheral France, in quotes. Um, we've been discussing that with uh, one of our French colleagues, and he's read a book um, that I need to look into it's been an interesting kind of idea that the basic stats of how a country is doing is, you know, broken down into GDP, to growth, to national employment. It's always looking at it nationally, the economic performance. But there's a whole subsector of study that looks at the differential um, performances within any given country. And the, the, the picture seems to be that, by and large, Paris and some other urban centers are doing fine. There is relatively good growth, uh, low unemployment. Um, they're doing okay. There's innovation, there's new technologies, and people see it in the places where they live. They see it, the world is either doing okay or it may even be getting better. And, and this goes some way, the idea goes, to explaining why that quarter, maybe a fifth or quarter of a population, still turns out to vote for these people. Mm -hmm. In France, it would be to vote for Macron's party. Uh, in the U.S., for the Democrats or etc. In whatever country you're looking at, it's because they don't mind this globalization. Because, well, it seems okay to us. What's the big deal? But they're not in the periphery that isn't getting the same uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. If anything, it's getting plundered at higher rates. As part of the process of globalization, mm -hmm. but it's leaving these kind of oases of quote unquote world cities across the West and even beyond the West. There's a kind of like, um, at the expense of the nation state, there are world islands, world cities that are linked together culturally almost, uh, at least in terms of the kind of homogenous, homo homo um, bland, non culture culture that's the product of globalization. Mm -hmm. Um, they're linked economically, um, through trade, and even, Jesus, the, the way things are going through marriage and so forth, you know, they, they, they go as tourists to different places. They develop their favorite places, their favorite hangouts in these cities. So there's this kind of subculture that has formed linking all these countries. And these would be the natural voters, supporters for globalists and the parties that express most clearly the globalist agenda. In, in France's case, um, the En Marche, the party Macron's. created for, for, uh, yeah, for Macron's. Because it's a question that bothered me, like how did anyone, at least in substantial numbers, vote for Macron when he was such an unknown and his message jived so horribly with all the things that you assume most people see are going wrong? Well, what if there are these sections of people who don't see it because they don't tangentially it. They don't feel it in their wallets, in their immediate neighborhood, where they go to work every day. Mm -hmm. Those places are doing fine. So I'm all right. So, right. Um, yeah, and ideology, I suppose, plays a, plays a big part in that as well. And, you know, the different, like we've talked about in previous shows, the different uh, types of kind of human beings, <clears throat> uh, you know, as we've, as we've mentioned previously, the, the split between conservative or right wing and left wing that has been around for quite a long time um, is actually natural, is a part of uh, human, human, the nature of, of, of individual human beings, you know. Um, so obviously someone who would be more conservative would be more about their own, where their own background, where they're from, their own nation state, that kind of thing would be less likely to be such a globetrotter and um, would tend maybe to stay at home um, more so. So uh, those people would be, are probably more likely to be people who are, 
people are doing a bit of protesting in the current time. And of course, we see that that most of the protests, the protests going on um, in many European countries, um, and in and and the, I suppose the dominant the 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 pushback, let's say, is coming from conservatives, conservative-minded people. I mean, I may not even call themselves conservatives, no. but the conservative-minded people, basically, uh, in the U.S., obviously the people who supported Trump and uh, are, are supporting his his policies and his presidency um, in the U.K., people supporting Brexit. Um, like I said earlier, there's probably a big majority, or a big percentage, let's say, a significant percentage, um, or maybe even a majority of people in France who are of that mindset, even though they might be nominally kind of more leftist, whatever, they're actually nationalists. They're inter they're, I mean, the thing that galvanizes people to get out in the streets in France has to be a sense of nationalism. You yes, know? yes. Uh, a, a love for their own country, for their own culture, and wanting to protect it. Uh, we see we see protests or people who are in the ascendant or who are pushing back in Poland and Hungary and Italy. They're all conservatives, um, and there's growing movements in other countries of, of the same type, you know. Um, and I think, like I said earlier on as well, I think that you know, it's you could say that people are split fifty-fifty between conservative and in any given population. Them generally, they're split between fifty-fifty between conservative and and left-leaning people. But I think. Um, I think in, in in this time the the majority of people who would be out protesting in the streets would be uh, conservative minded, and even there would be it would be pulling a lot of people from even the left side of the political spectrum as well, mm -hmm. uh, because it's you know it's not black and white basically. You can have yeah. people, you can have left left leaning people who are very nationalistic, yeah. You know, so it's it's not an exact science, obviously, but yeah. To talk about it, you have to talk about it in generalities, you know, to get a broad overview of it of the dynamics, you know. There have been commentators on the French media seriously saying, and I bet they have some, a number of people who believe them, that the, the prevalence of protesters waving the tricolor, the French flag, is indicative of an ideological bent among them, or at least a portion of them, mm. towards being ideologically nationalist. Because you're waving your national flag. But these people, they don't, they, they've forgotten that most around them it's as natural as pao chocolat with your breakfast in the morning. It's as natural as baguette. There is no ideological plotting and scheming no. going on in their right. heads. They all speak French. They're French. They go on holidays in France. I mean, they don't know anything. They, they, right. They're not your globetrotters. So, no, yeah. there's no scheming. It's just what they would naturally but that's why resonate with. That's why it's ridiculous for people like Macron and others in, in Europe and in, uh, in, other, in the U.S. and other Western countries to take this line uh, to, to you know to fall in behind it really you know um to adopt an anti-nationalist uh approach or an anti uh, adopt an anti-nationalist agenda mm -hmm. or ideology because the vast majority of people are to one extent or another nationalist so the elites in doing that are are almost consciously S separating setting themselves. themselves against the majority of the population yeah it's just bizarre that they can't. Why would they do? Why they? I don't. I've no idea why they would. Why they would do that, or what they think they're going to achieve. Unless what they want to achieve is, is discord, you know, and social unrest. It just blows my mind, you know, and and it blows my mind that that that, that nationalism, the idea of nationalism, uh, has been so quickly in in recent years demonized mm. and turned into. Nazism or racism or sex, all the all the bad isms. Nativism. Yeah, I mean it's it's bizarre. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a native of this country. But <laughs> yeah, what's your point? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, a little, little interesting tidbit on that. Um, the mayor of Toulouse. But uh, just uh, just oh, yeah, you know, before I, I was just going to say, the obvious explanation as to why the elites would find themselves in opposition to the rest, mo most of the people in the country, along that ideological line of the people being more nationalist. And the, the elites being not nationalist or being globalist is well for that reason. They're interested in, you know, there's a kind of global elite, let's say, for want of a better term, of uh, politicians and corporate bigwigs and stuff who do have influence all around the world. Their interest is all around the world. You know, they they're seeking and have have sought and have gone a long way to achieving influence and control over large parts of of, of the world. And you know, not. In a 
homogenous way, but you know, here and there in different places. So their outlook from a selfish personal point of view is by definition globalist and nationalism stands against globalism, obviously, because you know, if you're a globalist, you want to, to be able to move they're all your resources, basically, you know. Mm -hmm. For a globalist, all of the human beings on the planet are potential human resources that you can exploit and use to enrich yourself. Uh, and, you, and maybe they want to move those people. Let's move this group over here into this country because it would be good to stimulate the economy and the economy will do better and, and you know, justify it themselves in various different ways. And it's not, not, not necessarily a lie that, you know, immigration does have a, a stimulating effect or can have a stimulating effect on the economy and can be good for the economy and stuff. But it's uh, it's when it's done and the way it's done and um, and who who gains from it effectively and who and who loses and trying to minimise the losses. But these days, I think they're just they're just elites are off the leash type thing, and uh, and they see the globe as as theirs to control, mm -hmm. and that, like I said, stands in direct opposition to the natural, completely natural, inbred, inborn uh, tendency of the vast majority of people. I think to favour nationalism their home their own country where they're from uh and their own traditions and stuff and want to protect those and that goes that goes against that's that that's a block or a an obstacle for for a globalist mindset to, to overcome and you have to overcome it through promoting and pushing ideology trying to browbeat the people and that's why we see nationalism and uh, other kind of you know nationalistic tendencies being described in those negative terms that people are nationalists people who have that tendency which is most people again you have to remember it's most people are being browbeat uh with allegations of being racist or xenophobic or or whatever islamophobic etc et mm -hmm. um and i don't know how you have to force i don't know how they're gonna gonna win that one you know can you really beat that out of people maybe some people you can cajole it out of them or, or shame it out of them or something but i think for most people they're always going to fall back to my country, my home, my culture. Uh, if I have to choose, I'm going to choose to defend it. You know? I think that they relied until recent years on educating, really propagandizing right. people um, in the right direction. Because if you're globalist, you've essentially, or you believe you've overcome those anachronisms of the past. And and you have seen tangible evidence for it that supports your lifestyle, your life, your worldview, everything. You've maybe done business in other countries. You work for a company that's not really of any one country. It's got lots of employees. From, they speak different languages. Um, and so it's inev it's, there's an, inev an inevitability about the, the trend for, 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 for you. And, right. and you assume that it's so natural to you now We've got to get other people into the 21st, into progress. This is the future. Um, but when they started to get pushback, now we're seeing a more aggressive side. Right. To, yeah. They're, okay, not, they're not going to take no for an answer, basically. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, a globalist perspective requires an empire. And we've had an empire in the, in the, in the well, previously in the shape of the British Empire and other European empires, and then handed off to the American Empire primarily in the 20th century. And that helped a lot in extending or spreading a, a kind of an attempt to spread a kind of global monoculture. It had some success. And I mean, you look at kind of like music for young people these days, you know, there's what you call Korean pop, K pop, and stuff like that. It's just the same as pop music in Western Europe that, that came from Western Europe, you know, and into a, an Asian culture, you know. And similar effects in, in India and that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, so they try to spread, you know, co the Coca-Cola culture, basically, homogenize everybody, the entire world, make them all the, all the same, basically. And even English, you know, the spread of the English language is a result of the, the, the influence of, of the Western empires and the American empire. Uh, you know, you could see a future time when everybody in the planet speaks English, everybody drinks Coca-Cola, everybody goes to McDonald's. Uh, at that point, globalism, that's the wet dream of the globalists, like, you know, because you've got 8 billion people or however many billion people on the planet at, at that uh, hypothesized time. Uh, they're all on song, you know, they're all one. It's one crowd, one herd, let's say. And they're very easily, you know, they're much more easily exploitable, you know, because they don't have any of their own sovereignty, getting back to what I was saying earlier on. They don't, they're not sovereign individuals. That's another uh, definition or, or interpretation or meaning of the word sovereign uh, in terms of each individual seeing mm. them seeing them seeing himself or herself as kind of individual and unique you know and having their own voice that is you know is is theirs you know uh and that they can have disagreements and but still get along and all that kind of stuff you know 
well, you don't really want that. You want everybody to think the same, to talk the same, to uh, and to act the same, ideally. Yeah. This reminds me of a book I read years ago. Um, I think it was published late 90s. I don't remember the author's name, but it was Jihad versus Mac World. And they were talking about globalization, the globalization of everything, monetary systems, economy, culture. Right. Um, and that the prediction, one of those eerily prescient predictions was that the, the backlash to it would come, jihad, would come from Muslims. Mm. And I guess if he was, be, he was being politi politically correct in saying extremist Islam, mm -hmm. extremist interpretations of Islam, and that this would be the main antagonism it was kind of it was along the lines of clash of civilizations I, right. he might even have been a colleague of some sort he was an, an american academic um jihad versus mac world but look at the assumption in there the assumption is that the backlash the, the antagonism the opposing pole to globalization will come from atavistic cave dwelling radical muslims radical muslims covered head to toe with head to toe with suicide bombs underneath mm. Um, but it's not. But there's no room in there, or it's conflated with, like the majority of people in their country being, yeah, a big normal nationalists. It was a big miscalculation, really. I mean, on their part, it was wishful thinking, and uh, but at the same time, Islam is a problem for globalization in, in the sense that it's not obvious how that's going to be incorporated into uh, a Western, primarily Western-oriented uh, or focused uh, global global structure you know it's, global doing, culture, it's you know? doing pretty well in some pockets so think of dubai and well, Qatar. Yeah. they're not even muslim anymore really <laughs> i don't know right muslim light i mean if you if you think of them and yet they're places. also extremists i mean they are they have well, like, they yeah. still have laws that Absolutely. are like crazy yeah so i don't know i mean you have one set of elites pushing for globalization and then you have another set of elites you know who are i don't know if they're working towards this goal specifically or not but uh, certainly it seems to have they have a hand in the creation of radical islam that uh that you know that doesn't doesn't seem to play into any global globalized agenda you know other than the the wars and stuff that they use radical islam to 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 carry out but uh it, it seems to be a, a problem you know it's 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 you know it has created it's part part of the pushback certainly among some people in western western countries radical islam is part of the anti-globalist pushback because they see part of globalism is the agenda to move a lot of migrants into into ah, different right. countries and then if those migrants are muslim they're very clearly different you know islam is very clearly distinct in its outlook on life and stuff from western christian values so how do you expect to homogenize all those you know muslims mm -hmm. and christians you know and, and actually you're you're forcing uh, a, a nationalistic backlash by trying to impose that Right, so the, the, the consequence of jihad is the backlash. Right. However, this guy, when he was writing it, he wasn't suggesting that. I mean, yeah, he, wouldn't have, he wouldn't have seen the steps of what, what would come as a result of it. Um, but speaking of migration, it, it was a topic. Macron's big spiel now for the next three months, he's, he's launched uh, un grand débat, a big national debate, mm. um, big in national. which he goes on speaking tours. Ostensibly to listen to um, mayors in towns and cities up and down the country. This week he was in the southwest. Um, yeah, uh, it was a long conference. There were some 600 mayors there. And one of the biggest cities in the region, the mayor, a woman named Brigitte Barège, spoke up. She was completely excoriated in the media after what she said. Her basic argument was, she gave some examples of what's going on in her, in her city. She said there are 70 um, potential terrorists on the, the official national terror watch list, the Fiche S in France, um, o openly living in the city. She doesn't want them there, but you know, they've been placed there, but they're probably placed there from Paris, you know, when they have to distribute numbers of migrants. Um, one of the things she said was she complained that a facility that had been used in the city to house runaway and homeless teenagers was requisitioned in recent years for housing newly arrived migrants. The teens, well, I guess the teens were kicked out, the French mm -hmm. teens. Um, and she, she went on and said these migrants are receiving more often than not. I mean, she was fairly diplomatic in her language, but she also wanted to make this point. 
they're receiving higher levels of social welfare benefits than French citizens. For example, migrants will receive the full health care coverage that France is famous for, but which the French poor no longer get. If you cannot afford to pay the additional that needs to be paid to get a pair of glasses or dentures, too bad. That's part. Of, that's one of the reasons why uh, colloquially in France, the yellow vests are calling themselves les sans-dents, those without teeth, because they can't pay for dentures anymore. They would have had that health care coverage before. Anyway, she's saying the migrants are coming in, they get full, they get the full, whatever you need, they get everything. Housing, health care coverage, social welfare payments. Um so she made this point, and then she she obviously she tied in. That's what she mentioned the the fact that you know we've also got these potential terrorists running around our small city. You know we're not happy about this situation, and the, of course she was pilloried in the media for being a racist, blah blah blah. But um, it's yeah. th- th- this is it's it's, and it was a rare thing. I mean th- this until now the. Front National, only Front National deputies or mayors have have made that kind of public statement. She went on a limb here, I think, by publicly as a, she's formerly a member of the centre-right, Les Republicains in France. Mm. So she basically ended her career or risked ending it right there and then by speaking up and saying this. Mm. That's why she had to be attacked in the media, Mm. you know. To, to get her back down in place. And you can't say that's the racist, fascist thing that only FN will say. Well, not anymore, apparently. This is the first... Um... And just to, just so people understand why migration and why the politicians in countries really like and always have done, you know, for, I don't know, for hundreds of years, really, have really liked migration, is that um, it obviously provides uh, a cheap source of labour for the economy. And it promotes or encourages growth. Like, for example, if... If you, you know, a company, a big corporation or somebody planning to start open up, open up a new, a new uh, subsidiary of their business or whatever, they look first and foremost at the population. If there, um, is there enough people basically to, to open this new facility? If I need to employ a thousand people, are there a thousand people who are willing to work there? Uh, and if they're not, then we need to get them from somewhere, you know? And so they see, the politicians see all of this uh, potential in business to grow almost, um, uh, indefinitely, to grow and grow and grow. I mean, certainly they think there's a lot of room to grow. Obviously, geographic space ultimately would constrain the amount that you can grow, but there's a lot of geographic space uh, still available. So they see uh, the need for people to be on hand. Put the people there first, like build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. Or the other way around. Bring them and you will build it because the available workforce is there. And particularly, uh, migrants are good because a lot of uh, a lot of countries in Western in, in in Europe, many countries in the world already, but a lot of countries' economies are heavily dependent or heavily based on on the service industry. And service industry is has a lot of uh, kind of relatively more or less unskilled and relatively low paid jobs. And that's like gold dust to and to, to businesses. You and know, have they, more labor than there is work available, so right. they'll compete with each other to keep the prices low for the labor costs and right. also. It means that they're being competition to do the best job they can. Right. So you need the people first. That's why. That's why they're. Just in case anybody's wondering why <clears throat> Merkel wants to bring in, has brought in a million or two million, whatever the number is, of immigrants over the past couple of years, and other European countries are all the leaders of those countries, and the politicians are all for immigration. It's for the economy, and that's really what uh, the first order of business for for most of the political elite, for the for the governments of countries, is the economy, keeping the economy robust and growing. Because it means that they, if you want to bring it down to a selfish perspective, they can keep their cushy jobs, they can keep their high salaries, and they can keep giving themselves uh, increases in salaries. They can keep, you know. And uh, they freed themselves. And from keep the people the... happy because there's jobs and everybody's happy and everybody's good and they're at the top of the heap and blah, 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 you know. In the rarefied atmosphere of global, having a global outlook, they freed themselves from these um, slave like bonds of uh, affinity for your fellow citizen in your country it's like whatever with those bonds not there the way is just open to whatever bring in yeah it doesn't matter a million blacks from africa fine it doesn't matter yeah there'll be whites and blacks but they'll get along fine but and yeah but in their inherent in that in that greed that it's essentially a a greed motivation because the people who gain the most are politicians and their corporate friends and we know there's a revolving door between political class and the corporate class and stuff so it's ultimately to, to feather their own nests their, their, their own motivation to bring in immigrants is for 
selfish interests ultimately. Of course, they have a narrative where they say, well, everybody benefits, trickle down, blah, blah, blah. doesn't exactly work that way. Trickle down econ economics doesn't really, uh, has been shown to not really work. It's a nice idea, but it doesn't really work. Um, the, the, the rich keep getting richer effectively. And, um, but in their greed and their, in this push for a mi a migration, they're finding themselves having to tinker with very fundamental, not just the economics of the situation, but very fundamental uh, behavioral characteristics of human beings. And that's very dangerous to do that. I mean, that's you're, you're asking for trouble. So like what I mean is they're, tr they're having, like I said before, they're having to cajole, browbeat, shame, manipulate populations into uh, giving up their national identity because they see national identity as a, as a block to immigration because people will say, well, we don't want those foreigners in here or there's too many foreigners. You know, small town in some city. And it's happening in, in the rural, rural, rural villages and rural towns in, in, in many places in Europe where you know, a town of a thousand people gets 300 migrants. You know, so mm -hmm. before, and you know, that, that changes the look for the, yeah, people have lived there their whole lives, that certainly changes the look of their town, you know what I mean? It, and I mean, you can call it racist if you want, but it means that there's a bunch, there's now one third of the population of our town is a different skin color. And not just that, but they also have different ways of, you know, comporting themselves, different behaviors. If they're Muslims, they're maybe they want to build a mosque, they want uh, to pray five times a day, and you have to, you know, you, the people have to be convinced that that's a good thing. Diversity is good. It's good for everybody. It enriches us. You know, it's cultural enrichment. Mm -hmm. And people are like, eh, I'm not so sure because, you know, I kind of liked it the way it was, you know. I'm used to it. You know, it's the way my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents did things. We have a tradition. We have our own culture and stuff, and this is kind of messing with that culture, and I'm quite attached to that, those cultural ideas. It gives me a sense of, of grounding and belonging and, you know, um, and, and if you mess with that, I don't like it. And that's what they're having to, yeah. the politicians believe, well, they're finding themselves having to stamp that out and get rid of it. We have to engineer. It's kind of like social engineering or, and if you want to go even deeper, it's almost like genetic engineering. You're trying to engineer because those, those cultural traits, especially if they're passed on from generation to generation, are genetic. The yeah. things you like and don't like yeah. uh, are passed on from previous generations and they're to do with the land and the country that you grew up in you know and they're not easily removed you know and that's why you're having a backlash from at least the people who feel that feel that that sense of history and belonging and culture quite strongly you know yeah that's that's a pretty profound point if their grand economic um strategies were being implemented people know it as the washington consensus the, the, the neoliberal idea ideology Okay, so they went along, but it was producing all of these unintended social consequences, like I suppose little brush fires that rapidly need to be put out. So now it's mandatory speech. You can't say certain things. Now it's facial recognition software, so we can keep an eye for terrorists or extremists like mm -hmm. dissidents or whatever. Well, and see, it grows and grows and grows because you have now to do all the managing of your original ideas and policies that produce all these byproducts mm. <clears throat> and it just goes into this leviathan yeah and from a social engineering pro point of view you could almost see a, a people who subscribe in, in, in positions of power who subscribe to the idea of social engineering you know it does get into obviously into human psychology and all that kind of stuff and it's it's kind of the overused kind of pavlovian dog um reference or, or analogy is is actually quite is quite appropriate and that's why it's, i think it's used so much is that kind of bizarrely the well you would think that terror attacks by Muslims ascribed to Muslims would be a really bad idea if assuming that the state has some kind of a hand or complicity in those that but this isn't really helping your your uh, globalization and immig immigration agenda but if you see it from a different perspective where it's kind of like a shock like a the way that Pavlov shocked his dogs to the point where they were open to programming. Right. You know, so even though it seems it's uh, it's counterproductive, it may actually have have the it may actually be useful to achieving that goal. You know, where you shock people enough with these kind of graphic and brutal terror attacks, and then they're more willing to accept to whatever you say, whatever even if it's saying you should let more of these Muslims in, the ones that 
you think carried a deterrent? So, broadly speaking, then they've been surprised that it didn't work on that. But there's more resistance. That, that the dogs have more resistance. Yeah, well, this is, goes back to speaking of psychology. It reminds me of uh, Martha Stout's book, The Paranoia Switch, and she wasn't the only one. Um, Naomi Klein intuited it as well in her book, The Shock Doctrine. In 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 so far as she talked, she talked about economics, but she also talked about the psychology of it. And she summed it up by saying, you know, you shock people, and you shock them, and you shock them, but shock wears off. Right. It, it's not an endless regression into mm. total submission. Right. Like that's a pipe dream or a right. horrible nightmare if that's, if that's what you want to, to be the end result. And people aren't dogs. That way. They, will, they will adapt and develop. Yeah. Life is an yeah. endless upwelling of, of yeah. options. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, hmm. it's, it's, it's strange, you know, and, and one of the, the best protection against this, I mean, you notice that we're not advocating for one or the other we're not advocating any, any agenda or any ideology. We're simply describing it as we see it happening, you know. That's why we kind of like to see ourselves as kind of like anthropologists in a certain sense, to the best of our ability, uh, as if we're not really from this planet in a certain sense, you know. And we're just here to document the event. Um, we, don't, we, don't, we don't take sides because taking We didn't sides. design this experiment, by the way. No, just... we didn't design it. We're just looking at it and go, whoa, We came upon weird. it. <laughs> How did this happen? So uh, it's interesting... It's a good way to, to approach it if you can keep yourself in that headspace, you know, of uh, detachment from it, even though it's very difficult at times because it could be happening on your doorstep. Mm. But uh, it's not a good idea. It's, it's much worse to get identified with one ideology or another, although we still understand why people will, will, will do that. We don't blame them for it. Um, but it's, it's the best protection against uh, kind of the potential nefarious end goal if, if such a thing exists. Of, of you getting caught up in it to to just stand back and try and understand it always in all its nuances, you know, and to describe it and define it, you know. You're much less likely to get caught up in it in that uh, if, you, if you follow that that process, you know. Yeah. Um, speaking of globalism and migration, you wrote about Brexit this week mm. and... You think you're sure it's fundamental to all the arguments about Britain, EU, um, should they be in or out? Yes, it's about sovereignty, but that this, 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 this probably would not have happened if we had not moved into this overall context we're in post 9-11 of terror, 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 embrace the migrants, embrace the migrants. Uh, migrant terror, migrant terror, or Muslim oh, terror, Muslim terror, Muslim terror. Now embrace the Muslims. No thanks. Right. I'm not going to do that. I think it's a big, like I said, it's a big part of the, uh, or as I wrote it, it's a big part of the, it's a, like we said earlier on the show, actually, it's sovereignty is very closely associated with, or it, it, it leads on very easily to uh, a desire for sovereignty or identification with sovereignty is very close to, uh, or can easily become anti, uh, an anti-immigration stance. Because sovereignty means homogeneity, you know, culture, tradition, that kind of stuff, and then immigration is obviously a, a and it does water down sovereignty effectively, as as people conceive of sovereignty. Um, so, yeah, it was a big part of it in in the UK. Uh, in what you just described, you know, seventeen years of Muslim terrorism, Muslim terrorism, terror attacks in the UK, in Europe, very graphic. People, you know, getting it fall in the face basically um, traumatising and left most people, a lot of people let's say, those who are, who are a bit immune to the the cultural uh, well I don't know if I want to say cultural Marxism but uh, of the diversity propaganda, people who are more immune to that are the ones who basically say you know, for 17 years you've been telling us we've seen clearly with our own eyes in a very brutal fashion that Muslims tend to want to kill us and now you're saying that the same Muslims, and very explicitly, the same Muslims, because the media said it at the time, the same Muslims who carried out those terror attacks are amongst the migrants. And you want us to say yes to them coming into our country? Obviously, no. Mm -hmm. You may as well ask me to want that rapist to come into my house. No. Obviously, mm -hmm. I don't. What's the stupid question? Um, so I think that was a big impact, and other people say it's more about sovereignty. But, you know, in terms of the English, and really when you talk about Brexit, you're not talking about, you're not talking about British people, you're talking about English people. 
because English people are a distinct entity. If we can trust UK. the basic ratio that the official result gave us, but yeah, yeah. it does look like it. Scotland well, no, said but, to stay. Yeah. Northern Ireland, Wales, half and half. Right, but but even so, the majority. I mean, they they predominate. English people are fifty eight, fifty out of sixty five million. They're fifty four million. So if any majority uh, voted to leave, voted for Brexit, then it was pre predominantly English people. You know. And they have a history of being quite proud and nationalistic and rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves and we had an empire and we won the wars and, you know, we don't like those Europeans, bloody French, bloody Germans, bunch of Nazis, etc. You know, there's kind of tropes and, uh, that, that, that exist within English, particularly English culture. Not that all, I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that all English people are racist, racist or anything like that. I'm just saying they're more nationalistic. So don't accuse me of saying that that means they're racist because that's the leftist uh, propaganda. Well, as soon as you say someone's nationalistic, it means they're racist. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they're, I'm saying they're nationalistic, and in certain conditions, uh, in certain, uh, under certain under certain conditions, not well under all conditions. I would say nationalism is 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 a good thing. It's not because it's natural. I mean normal na nationalism here. Um, but under a situation where you try to impose a foreign population on an, a nationalistic population. Then, if they if they if they reject that, to one extent or another, they're not being racist. They're simply being protective of their own culture. That's not racism. Yeah. So, I'm not saying that English people are racist, but I'm saying that um, I'm saying what I'm saying is that nationalism was a big part of, and anti-immigration was a big part of for that reason I gave about terrorism primarily, but also because English people tend to have a, have a long history of being quite nationalistic and quite. Could say a little bit elitist as well, have a kind of bit of a superiority complex. You know, we civilized the world, the British Empire. We brought blah 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 to the natives, all that kind of stuff. You know, you know um, modernity to the natives. Uh, so they're quite. They have a. They're, they're big into sovereignty and big into into English nationalism, in in one way or another. You have the extremes in the British National Party and all that kind of stuff, but national tendencies are is spread quite liberally throughout the conservative. Or right-wing population of the, or, or just the population of the of, of England, and um, so that's why primarily for those reasons that's why they voted for Brexit, and uh, but the problem is that because their politicians are by definition and all politicians, particularly in the West these days, are globalist, then that means that English pop English politicians. And there's something like 70%, if you look at the figures, or it's 70% of Parliament don't want to leave the EU. While 70%, possibly, I would say, of the English people do want to leave the EU. So you have a massive problem there with a lack of representation mm -hmm. of the people's will among the politicians. So this Brexit farce is basically, uh, has been become a farce for that specific reason, mm -hmm. that the people voted to leave and the politicians do not want to leave on both sides of, of, of the political aisle of uh, the Conservatives and the Labour Party. None of them want to leave, you know, more or less, very few. And so they've been spending the past couple of years trying to find a way to not leave, but at the same time not look like they're totally dissing the will of the people and making it seem like they're kind of uh, authoritarian and fundamentally anti-democratic. It's a real problem. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, there's the internal power struggle within UK that goes on, and in most most other countries all the time with this, you know, the party in power versus the opposition. The party in power wants to maintain itself in power, and that's the Conservatives right now who want to maintain themselves in power at the expense of the Labour Party. While the Labour Party wants to do everything it can to undermine the Conservative Party so it can get into power at the next general election. So, and that's that's Brexit for you basically. And what May is planning to do now, apparently, I was just reading. Um, and Craig Murray, he said that a cabinet office source uh, number 10 told him that uh, that the May's government was actually uh, considering agreeing to a second referendum. Mm -hmm. um, but there will be three choices. No deal Brexit, May's deal or no Brexit. Um, I, I, that is, just leave the EU without any agreement with the EU. Don't leave the EU. Or go with May's May's phony deal of sort of like leaving the EU, but it's not really. Um, and he also says that it would be an alternative vote, i.e., you rate your preferences one and two, and then they have a they tally the figures afterwards, and by doing the numbers, basically 
you would have a good chance based on the expected response rates from people putting, I want this first and this is my second choice. Then you then you go again, you break it down to the two top ones and then you get the people to vote on that and you work it in such a way that her no deal Brexit is the one that's voted on in the referendum. So if they're trying to find a way to have right. another referendum uh, to be democratic but still maintain the the trajectory that they're on right now, which is they remain in power and it's her success, the Conservative Party success that delivered Brexit, even though it's not Brexit. It's such a <laughs> the, bullshit game. It's amazing. The, the loops they're getting themselves into, yeah. it's like, so this would be a transparent referendum, yeah. hashtag not transparent. <laughs> because Pretty much, yeah. Three options and it can be when you fudge put, the way you ask it. Yeah, yeah. Garbage in, garbage out. Pick from these list of three things. Then we're going to select the top two and then we're going to get you to, to, to vote again on the top two and then working it that way we can more or less assure uh, a specific outcome. So it's it's a manipulated referendum basically. That to, seems to be what's... To get what she's trying, been trying to get for the past two years right. which is people to agree you know public consent and, and ironclad agreement with uh, for her for her dodgy agreement with the EU. Which, which is, would keep them in the EU. Which would effectively keep them in the EU. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's that's the outcome of, of what happened in the UK this week. Mm-hmm. Her deal was rejected in Parliament. Immediately, Labour says, oh, well, then the government's potentially uh, in disfavour, even among its own party. And the day after a vote overwhelmingly, well, no, clearly, that's overwhelming, all of those backbenchers in the Tory, in Tory party, even the hardcore Brexiteers, everyone said, no, we're behind May. Mm-hmm. She stays. Um, which again comes back to the point about it being power. Right. The, well, there's, there's the a, a navigation to take place now. I need to defend, get behind the party mm-hmm. because we can't let Jeremy Corbyn in. Right now, I need to switch over here because we're not we're not we're ever leaving the EU. No way. Right. So it's a constant kind of. So as this thing is snaking through, what are the options right now? It's it's ten weeks to not formally Britain overnight on March 29th being outside of the EU. Mm. Um, the referendum is in the air. She's, People are talking about it. But at the same time, I just want to get this in, that there was, I think it was a government source as well who said, who kind of poo-pooed the idea of a referendum by saying that it would take, oh, at least a year to yeah. organise. Well, they would, they would stretch it out for a while. Yeah, but they've got plenty of time, right? They're no, they're no rush to leave the EU. So they're not in a 10-week rush. They don't have to make no, that because, deadline. Well, coming up, basically, March. just for, for what it's worth, coming up is uh, an amended supposedly an amended, uh, possible amended EU deal, Theresa May's EU deal is going to amend it in some way. That's why she's been talking to the opposition parties to say, well, how can we kind of like, you know, amend this, the, the, the details of the deal that I struck to so that, you know, you'll all support it basically. But apparently that's not going to happen, you know. So uh, it's just ridiculous. It's going to go to Parliament again with some kind of amended deal. They're going to reject it. And then they don't know. You just have to wait day by day to see what they come up with, basically. But you can see the trajectory that they're on, that they're not leaving the EU and they want to stay in power. The Conservatives want to stay in power. It's a, they're fighting effectively for the survival of the Conservative Party, which is, you know, a centuries-old institution in the UK. It could, there's a threat that it could just it could fold up and, and, and blow away, you know, and some new party. And what happens to all those people who are, you know, long-term or identified with Conservative Party and long-term Conservative Party politicians and stuff. I mean, they just lose their positions and their jobs overnight, you know. So uh, that's what's going on, and it's uh, I'm really bored of it at this point, to be honest. Like, it's just, they're, they're dragging it out. It's just so annoying, you know. Uh, and, think, and it annoys me, all the, all the all the media crap, you know, analysis and all that kind of stuff around it, and, and all of them are missing, yeah. missing the important point, you know, so it's just... The, the yellow vest has been taken up as a symbol, as I mentioned earlier, in the UK, um, it's ob- it's being used for both sides of Brexit, right? Um, but but again, within England, it's probably consistent. You probably actually find that the real in quotes yellow vests are those who want Brexit now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's backed up by a poll from Sunderland, a city in the northeast, this week that had something like seventy percent no Brexit now, right? And seventy percent probably reflects. The national average for England, right, as regards Brexit, right. but then on the other hand, the UK is a complicated place because it's several nations. So the Scotland would be, if they were to don the LFS, it would be for something else to stay slash for their own independence. Mm-hmm. 
whichever issue takes precedence right. in the coming years. Because they don't like the English, historically. And then there's the Irish issue. So, yeah, there's yellow vests, but it, it's different insofar as it's... Well, no, it's consistent with what we said earlier, with yeah. sovereignty, but with sovereignty of the breakup of the United Kingdom, which is a mini-union in itself. And it's interesting that, I think it was Theresa May, someone in the government this week, for the first time, articulated that real risk that if we don't navigate this well, there's a serious chance of Scottish secession, reunification. Yeah. Well, they of don't Ireland. want that to happen either, you know. And it's a Conservative Party that has traditionally wanted, obviously, to hold that together. You know, the Labour Party, at least the real traditional Labour Party, has always been open, but well, you know, in theory, open to the idea of uh, of independence for the constituent states of the United Kingdom. You know, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is a has always been a supporter of Irish. Uh, Irish nationalisation or Irish, Irish nationalism, you know, or unification of, of Ireland. So he probably wouldn't be that averse to uh, uh, an independent Scotland either, you know. And that's why he's seen as a he's a he's a betrayer. He's the ultimate uh, betrayer of British values because you know because they have their own little empire in the UK. Realise that. Mm -hmm. they, I mean, it's like if you imagine it's an empire in in, in a mini empire where it's London as the seat of empire and Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales being the the, the, the colonised territories and effectively they were in history and that, that lives on, you know. So it's this imperial mindset of rule the world. You know. it, it lived on despite 300 years. Yeah, bizarre. Remarkable how that's woken up. But it just shows you again how profound the, these times are and how deep-rooted um, the national sovereignty how deep rooted these things are, yeah. and uh, and uh, they're far from being these whimsical ideological constructs that no. the elites would like to pass off as. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what they're missing. No, with. it's it's the it's it's the land around my house, you know, that my fathers and grandfather, uh, parents, whatever worked. Uh, it's the it's the pub down the road. It's 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 the cultural aspect. It's the way. It's the accent we have. It's the language. The type of language we speak. You know. Um, it's all very, very important to people for their own sense of stability and, and identity, effectively, you know. So, and it's not going to be given up very easily, you know. I, I'll be I'll be surprised if they, I, I don't think they can force it out of people, you know. They'll have to beat it out of people. And even then, when you when you have to beat something out of someone, you've lost. Because you're not beating anything out of them, you're just beating them into submission. Get them to say, yes, okay, I agree with you, even though I don't. And then you've lost, you know. Yeah. And only strengthening, strengthening the national right, backlash. Exactly, they're factless. They're idiots. It's just stupid. the end. The end of that path is revolution. Yeah, like oh, honestly, God, actual through and through, mm. messy, bloody revolution. Right. Yeah. So um, those are good words to end on. I think. No. Indeed. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll call it quits there, folks. We uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you like the show, don't forget to like, subscribe. And comment if you've got any comments, feel free. Um, we appreciate it. And we'll be back next week with another show. So until then, have a good evening. Good evening. See you next time.